1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. You know, advances in new technology always seem to cause what friend of the show and previous guest Adam Thier would call technopanics. That is, people fear the new technology and the consequences of the use of that technology. And many times this is a result of not understanding what exactly is going on. Uh, and this is particularly so with technology used by young people. So today we're going to focus on one kind of technology used quite a lot by everyone but especially teenagers and that is social media. To help us with our discussion we have Dana Boyd who is a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, research assistant professor at NYU and fellow at University or I'm sorry, Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. She's also the author of the new book It's Complicated: The Social Lives of Network Teens. Hi Dana, how are you?
0: good how are you thanks for having me
1: no problem it's great so perhaps you can give the audience a little background on yourself how did you get to this point
0: um you know for me I was among the first group of teenagers who grew up online and for me I thought the internet was really my saving grace I grew up in a part of Pennsylvania where I didn't really fit in so well and um, the internet allowed me to jump on uh, and meet a whole slew of strangers back in an era in which strangers were not seen as particularly dangerous Mm And I, I went on to study computer science and to, to build technical systems, but then I became more enamored by how it was that people were using them. So I ended up retraining under anthropologists, and I've spent the past decade really trying to understand the different aspects of teenagers and technology. Okay, great.
1: So for this book, it's complicated, The Social Lives of Network Teens. Why The Social Lives of Network Teens?
0: Yeah, so, you know, when I started on this project, I'll be honest, part of it was that my advisor had gotten some funding from the MacArthur Foundation. He was like, can you study teens? And I was like, sure. <laughs> And um, I really imagined that I would go back and I would be like, oh, this will be great. Like, technology was transformative for me. Now it's going to be transformative for all these other young people. This will be fantastic. And I'll go and see all the transformations. Yippee! (laughs) Of course, I went in with an anthropological eye, which means that I went in to try to actually make sense of the cultural logic that really underpinned what teenagers were doing. And the first thing that I started to really realize was it wasn't the same as what I was doing, right? What they were doing online really was playing out Every aspect of teen life and the, you know, the dynamics there were sort of peculiar because it meant the good, bad and ugly of teen life. And, you know, as a as a geek and as an outsider, um, you know, I didn't really belong in my teen culture. And technology was associated with being, you know, a self-identified freak, geek and queer, right, of which all three labeled me. (laughs) And so, you know, for me, I, you know, I thought that this would sort of also play true with the, the next generation. And that was not true. Technology had become truly mainstream and what I was seeing online were mainstream practices. They were, you know, hanging out with their friends from school. They were, you know, joking around and gossiping and doing all the dumb stuff that teenagers always did, except that they were doing it online. And that was really intriguing to me. So I ended up diving in to try to really understand why they were doing it online.
1: Now You talk about anthropological study and and I think a lot of people don't really connect anthropology with technology. So what's the importance of the anthropological type of study with respect to technologies like social media?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Anthropologists have long argued that the, one of the best ways to understand people is to understand the cultural logic that underpins their practices. <laughs> and to do so, you need to spend a lot of time really living and breathing with a population and understanding them from their own perspective. Of course, you know, this is most famous in the idea of, you know, notoriously white academics from Western society going into, um, uh, non, often, often, you know, the global south, um, you know, trying to understand people of color in ways that have a colonial tendency towards it. You know, the, the history is not always so polite. Um, but the thing is, is the practice, the practice of ethnography, the practice of really trying to appreciate people from their own point of view has tremendous value. And that really is about saying, you know, where do they come from? What are they doing? Why does it make sense? And, of course, ethnography is, you know, basically the idea of mapping culture. And so, you know, when it comes to technology, what it meant in terms of my actual practice was that I started digitally. I started saying, "Okay, how do I understand what are the traces that are left behind by young people's participation? And, of course, I started this project in there of MySpace. What people don't realize about MySpace is that user IDs were, were produced in order, mm-hmm. which meant that every day I woke up, I figured out what the NUID was, and I randomly sampled across the entire you know, spectrum. So I got to have a random sample of young people's profiles every day. It was mostly young people that were on there. You know, but of course, that was only going to get me some level of it. It just allowed me to see the traces. And so then I ended up doing sort of more traditional ethnographic work. I spent time in 16 different U.S. states in a variety of different communities, from very privileged to, you know, working class and poor communities, um, from urban environments to, you know, more suburban and, and semi rural. I hung out in schools and after school programs, you know, at a variety of sports events. I went to a lot of church events. I, you know, I ate way too much Mickey D's, which um, <laughs> not good for the gut. Um, you know, and, I, and then I started actually interviewing young people and, you know, spending time in their homes and trying to understand what they were doing and, you know, moving between what I was seeing in terms of digital traces and what they were telling me, what they were showing me, what I was observing, you know, as I spent time just spending significant amounts of time trying to make sense of it.
1: Yeah. Now, let's get into the book. Uh, it's complicated. The social lives of network teens, which is a result of the anthropological study that you did. So... I guess big overall question are the kids all right or you
0: know, yes and no <laughs> the kids the technology is not the issue. Right. The challenge is that today's young people actually face uh, unprecedented levels of other issues that we don't account for because the technology ends up being abstraction. Mm-hmm. They're under tremendous amounts of pres- pressure and stress. You know, the class dynamics are, are brewing in really ugly ways. There's tremendous amounts of inequality. And when they're under tremendous amounts of pressure and stress, they're lashing out in all sorts of problematic ways, you know, disordered eating, self-injury, you know, at the more privileged environments, you know, classic consequences of, um, you know, poverty and inequality in, you know, more working class and poor communities. Um, and so the thing is, is that all of this becomes visible online, and a lot of it, we've done a lot to try to ignore, to try to pretend like that's not happening. And so then, when we see this stuff online, we blame the technology as though the technology created these issues, rather than saying actually this is an amazing opportunity to intervene. And you know, generally speaking, I'm amazed at young people's resilience. I'm amazed that even when their their you know situations are pretty horrible, they find a way, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it says something about the human spirit right but the thing is is that i get worried because we get so distracted by the technology that we think we can solve it by looking at the technology rather than seeing the technology as a window into broader structural issues that we really do need to address
1: hmm. now one of the things you talk about in the particularly in the beginning of the book is the technology becoming like or social media spaces becoming like what the mall was or, you know, the playground was in, in some areas. So uh, about the networked public idea, could you talk a little more about that?
0: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I kept hearing you know parents say, kids these days, why aren't they hanging out in the places we hung out? Like what's wrong with them? They're so obsessed with the technology. They can't even talk to each other in a face-to-face setting. And I was like, that's not really mashing with what I'm hearing. And of course, from teenagers, I kept hearing like, hey, I really would much rather get together with my friends in person. That'd be so much better, but I can't. And then they'd give me a litany of reasons. And what I started to realize is that there's a lot about American society in particular that has changed over the last 30 years that we don't pay attention to. We think about the changes in technology, but we don't think about what else changed. Mm -hmm. And in the period following World War II through the 1970s, We could pretty much reliably say that middle and upper class youth could get on a bike and be home by dark, and it didn't really matter where they went. And when their parents were trying to find them, they'd run around the neighborhood screaming their names or call up the neighbors trying to figure out where they were off to, or, you know, go down to the creek or wherever it was really a common place where teens gathered, and they'd find them. And nobody was ever really worried about it. This all changed in the late 1970s, early 1980s um, from a variety of different trends. Um, one was the tw- um, introduction of 24-7 news. What that meant was that we um, ended up hearing horrific things about happening to kids from anywhere in the country, and people started to embrace it as it was happening in their own backyards. <laughs> Uh, we also started hearing all of these anxieties about what was happening in in urban um, America, right? And all of these fears about the about dangers of gangs and and you know street issues and all these issues of violent crime. And so, people were convinced that like dangers were everywhere and that they had to protect their kids. That was sort of one beginning trend line. We saw it play out in a variety of different ways. We saw the implementation of curfew laws, trespassing laws, loitering laws, you know, things that forbid young people from gathering in public, um, you know, in, at all. Isn't it interesting to remember that, you know, curfew laws historically were constructed um, uh, around race, not mm-hmm. around age. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to see that transformation where it ended up being about age. And then, you know, we had this whole culture that responded to things like latchkey kids. Um, the idea of a kid going home uh, after school alone was just seen as really horrible. So the result of which is that we um, ended up creating overstructured activities, particularly in middle-upper-class America. Um, so, that, you know, today you see young people going from morning to night in activity after activity after activity with no freedom whatsoever. You know, there's also these other weird changes. So... You know, um, cars, for example, you know, cars used to be this freeing thing that you got when you were 16 if you didn't live in a city. And it was like, whoa, you have a car. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is that there's now laws that say you can't drive other kids. And what's the point of having a car if you can't drive <sighs> other kids? Um, and so you see cars are no longer you know of interest. So parents are driving kids around everywhere. They have nowhere that they can really go to other than their friends' houses where they're under a tremendous amount of surveillance. And it becomes a collective action issue, right? Which is that even if you as a kid can go out, that doesn't mean your friends can And so rather than trying to coordinate all the ways in which you will collectively sneak out, why not just jump online? And all of a sudden we saw technology fulfilling the role that all of these public places, like the park or the mall or the school dance, did in the past. It was like the place where you could rely on all of your friends to be where there wasn't that much adult supervision. And that was the point, trying to find a place of your own. Um, and they, you know, do all of the things that young people have always done in those spaces. They hang out, they gossip, they flirt, they joke around, they mess with each other, like the whole nine yards.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things you just mentioned is the collective action issue. And... Um, really of the young people getting together online to do things. And so I guess a related question to that is, are, they, are those ties that they make online strong? Are they the same as offline ties? You know, some people argue that friends made online are not real friends. So, the, so to ask you, are those connections as strong as the analog version?
0: Most young people, when they interact online, aren't actually connecting to strangers. Um, and they're really, really connecting to their friends from school, the friends that they already have. And sometimes they build new connections with schoolmates. So, for example, I, you know, I interviewed a young woman who she was really obsessed with One Direction. Um, and so, and she was, you know, talking all about it online, on Facebook, whatever. And one of her classmates, And she started talking, um, and they started talking about, you know, their their equal obsession with one of the you know band members, and then all of a sudden they had a reason to talk in school, right? So these connections, that connection looped back. Now, what's interesting are the kids who actually make connections that um, are with people first online. That is actually not that common. Um, It primarily fits into sort of three key camps. Um, The first are sort of interest-driven things. So you know. For example, even taking the One Direction example, you know, you'll see kids on Twitter who will start to make connections because they're all following and they're part of a fan community around One Direction, and they respond to each other. And at first, they respond to each other just because it's like, ah, oh, it's just like another person who's really into them. Uh, but then they start to getting to know each other a little bit more, and it takes a long time for those interest driven um, conversations to go even to a public, uh, or sorry, even to a private place. Like texting takes a long time to get there. Uh, so that's like the interest driven uh, mode of it all. Um, another sort of key aspect of this are for, um, uh, young people who are marginalized in their home communities. We certainly see this with LGBT youth. Um, and they've ebbed and flowed. The LGBT youth when I was growing up, I mean, you know, all of us were queer online when we were teenagers, you know, in the nineties, we all came out online. We built an entire support network there. That was absolutely essential to our sanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, That disappeared for many, um, young queer folk, um, um, because they were told that strangers were dangerous. Um, but you will still see some youth um, doing it, not at the level that you saw in the 90s, but you still see some. The other really, you know, pr- prominent way in which young people are connect- making connections online are through gaming platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are interesting because they're almost always activity-oriented, which means that, like, you'll see, you talk to these teens, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, like, I totally raid with this person, and, like, he's really, really awesome. And, like, well, have you tried to meet up with him personally? He's like, no. that's <laughs> right, Like, why would I do that? Like, it's just, like, literally, like, they really like it being in that context, and that context is gaming. Um, and so, you know, those relationships very rarely sort of jump over. Um, now, there are some who do. I mean, think about it. They spend, like, hours reading, sitting on Skype together at the same time that they're in the game, right? Like, they spend, they really do see each other a lot. But the thing about it is is that they don't always know how to bridge from the context of the game to, like, what, what else would you do together? Right? And that's where you start to see, you know, all the sort of social dynamics of how does context matter in this.
1: Now, now what we're talking about really I think is how young people, and, and other people for that matter, are building communities online for example. And, and one of the things you mentioned in your book is the idea of the imagined community. And I'm wondering also, is our definition of community changing with the use of, of technology?
0: You know, I really think in the 1990s it did. And I think that for a lot of those early adopters, like they imagined a community that was not bound by nation state, that was not bound by religion, that was not bound by, you know, other factors that were really traditionally circumscribing community. And I think that this was so empowering for a lot of the geeks who grew up in that era. I think that one of the reasons that I really struggle with it now is that in many ways, that version of the internet is gone. That true imagined community, that being a part of something—I And I think it's—it's. It's, I mean, it's sad to me. I mean, nowhere is it more visible to me than when I watch young people uh, reproduce structural boundaries that are that are disheartening and frustrating. So, you know, American society is circumscribed by a whole variety of factors, most notably race and class. Mm-hmm. And what this means is that if you are a young person going to school in America, you most likely know other people of your same racial demographic and of your same class demographic. And even within a school that is, you know, quote unquote, diverse, you will see people sort of gel in a homophilous way, in in an idea of birds and feathers stick together. Um, And so the thing is, is that there was this hope, this dream, especially for those of us who were, you know, of that era, that if we got everybody online, that race and class wouldn't matter. You know, n- national identity wouldn't matter. You could be whoever you wanted to be, right? A classic, on the, you know, internet, no one knows you're a dog kind of thing. Right. Um, but, of course, what we ended up seeing, especially as people went online to socialize with their peers, is that they reproduced so many of those existing structural dynamics. Um, and, you know, I saw a lot of this play out, you know, in a variety of different settings. i sort of, uh, you know, mention what I saw on Twitter, right? Which is that, like, a classic example was... Um, Uh, In the first year that trending topics existed um, and the Black Entertainment Television um, BET Awards um, was produced, um, all of the trending topics on Twitter were icons of the black community, right? And and notice this. This was just one trending topic at the time. This was not separated out by country or by city. And so, you know rather than sort of celebrating that this is a, you know, phenomenal visibility of these really, really awesome, um, you know, primarily artists, um, the racism that came into that conversation was just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And you would, you would read things like, you know, you know, lock your doors, folks, look who's coming. And you're just like, what is this? Right. And, you know, that was probably one of the nicer things you'd read. You know, and so you see these backlash and you see this, like, People commenting and saying like, you know, since when did, since when did Twitter become the ghetto, right? And you're just like, wow, what, what is this, right? And this recognition that people lived in these environments and they only understood them as the people like them. And we've had this problem with social media over and over again. In the early days of Friendster, which was one of the sort of earliest of social network sites, you know, the gay men that I met thought it was a gay male dating site, like, and they were shocked that people that were not gay were on the site, right? And you know when I was studying um, MySpace in the early days, it was really heavily popular amongst um, Christian youth. And so many of those Christian youth were shocked when they when they found out that like it wasn't a Christian site. But we <laughs> have these ways in which our pockets and our demographics shape our understanding of technology. But it's also the ways in which we reproduce our differences and our and our structural unacceptance of people that are not like us.
1: And, you know we're talking about social media but i feel the need that we should probably back up and really define what social media is in the first place and and has social media always been around has there always been some kind of social media
0: right you know so scholars have long talked about different kinds of communication technologies right and there you know the internet is is really based on a lot of communication technologies whether we're talking about you know, early-stage email, whether which was sort of, a you know, originally a one-to-one messaging system, obviously it became a one-to-many, whether we're talking about things like Usenet, which were, you know, one of the original, you know, group structures, which is 1979, right? Chat rooms, which were really amazing real-time things, and of course we had MUDs and MOOs and a whole variety of other things that, you know, scholars studied for a long time. The thing about... Um, all of those communication technologies is that if you define social media as social media, all of them fit into that rubric. But the thing about social media is that social media isn't simply, you know, media that is social. It is actually a particular phenomenon set into a particular time period. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to distinguish that. If you think about it, Web Web 1, which is how it's referred to, you know, retrospectively, um, really the dot com, you know, bubble. Um, during that period, everything became so obsessed with e-commerce and it became about information um, as the organizing function of the internet. And when that burst, um, and the, and, you know, the crash happened um, and the MBAs left San Francisco, all of a sudden you had a lot of people starting to reimagine how can we get back to the core values of what was, you know, the internet for so many of, you know, the early adopters. And a lot of them really relished community they really relish sociability they relish the idea of interaction and people and so people started to imagine new technologies that would empower a different kind of sociality but of course a lot more people were online after 2001 than they were before like in the you know before 98 for example that window was really significant and so you know logging obviously started out as a thing and we, we saw these technologies existing in like 99 i mean Obviously, there there are bloggers that go back earlier than that. You know, myself included. I was blogging since ninety seven, but by ninety nine, we had LiveJournal, right, which is pretty significant. Um, and obviously, Zanga and Blogger and all of these other tools. But then we had so we have that kind of pivot, which is really important. But then we started to see these social network sites. Mm-hmm. The social network sites did something really significantly different. In a world where everything was about individual one-to-one messaging or group-oriented things, social network sites said, hey, you can actually build your network and you can communicate within a network, which is a very different feeling. And so all of a sudden, we see this whole rise of new kinds of interactions. And that's why I say social media to me is less about the fact that there's media that's social. and It's more about a phenomenon that I would locate at the beginning of the social network sites, which at the time was called social software. Um, And refer to the whole collection of things that have really fed and fueled the big data phenomenon. Right.
1: So, you know, the teenagers now, and and those younger for that matter, um, are growing up in a time where social media is kind of ubiquitous. And so a lot of them have been, you know, termed that digital natives. And is this term really problematic? Does it it, uh, bring with it a lot of assumptions about these young people?
0: Yeah, I mean... I loathe the term digital native, um, and the reason why is that it, well, the idea of using rhetoric around natives and immigrants uncritically, given the history of like colonialism, is just unbelievably weird to me. But that's my academic <laughs> side of it all. But more sort of pragmatically, the problem with using digital natives is that it assumes that technical skills just sort of fly from the sky, and that if you're just of a certain age, you will inherit it through some magic of of birth. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you spend time with young people, you realize that they do not know what they're doing at all, right? (laughs) They don't know how to construct a query for a search engine. They don't understand an algorithm that produces something that appears at the top. They don't even know how to, you know, differentiate between basic media that they see in front of them. You know, the number of teens who would say to me, like, Oh, I don't use Wikipedia because anybody can edit it. You know, I've been told that it's bad. And I'm like, oh, well, what do you, what do you use instead? And they'll be like, well, Google, the stuff at the top is the right stuff. And you're like, oh my gosh, right? Like you don't understand this space. And so this is where it's frustrating to me because when we use this language, not only do we assume that they've got technical skills, but we don't hold adults responsible for the importance of educating young people to deal with the world that's in front of them. And we need media literacy. We need, you know, digital literacy. We need computational literacy. We need algorithmic understandings now more than ever, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have so many of our societal structures that are based on these technical systems without people who understand how to be critical about them. I mean, everything from like just what we're talking about in terms of, you know, social media and marketing to our high frequency trading realities, to our battles of what's happening with you know big data and discrimination, if we don't understand these technical issues, we can't hold accountable our our leaders. And if we don't do that, we don't have a functioning democracy. Yeah.
1: So, the idea of digital literacy not just appearing once you know uh, teenagers get online and start using these uh, you know technologies for a long time. The question is, I guess, becomes: Is it I guess, something that teenagers are even aware of that they lack? Or is it something they need to be told um, that, hey, you might need to learn a little more about this, the stuff that you're using?
0: I mean, over and over again, they're told that they're a little They're told that they understand technology. It's like the classic, like, you know, you know, my mother asking me to program the VCR, right? <laughs> It's like the, you know, old school version of this. But, like, these teenagers are like, you know, I definitely know Facebook better than you do. And it's like, yeah, they do. They know how to use it. But, like, you know, I'll sit down and ask somebody. I'm like, do you see all of the, you know, updates from all your friends? They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, does Facebook change, you know, which ones you see sometimes? like, no, they show all of them. I'm like, (laughs) no, it's Right. You know, some people, of course, did figure this out. But the thing is, is that when you don't have an awareness of this, even the most common tools you use, so it's like a lot of it requires, you know, eye-opening moments and eye-opening conversations, right, like about how these systems were constructed and why, you know, about what's happening with these data. I mean, another example that I see all the time is that, like, you know, teenagers will be like, oh, you know, if I don't want something to be shared, you know, or to be visible because it, it'll get me into trouble, I will make it private or I'll, you know, I'll send a private message. And then you ask them, it's like, well, you know, does the company still have access to this or can law enforcement get access to it? They're like, oh, no, it's private. And you're like, yeah, that's not how this works, right? And so, you know, these moments where, you know, they aren't necessarily aware. And the weird thing about it is, of course, They're as aware about this stuff as adults are, which is to say not very much, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not one of those where it's like, oh, teenagers are more clueless than adults. Actually, generally speaking, they're a little bit more clueful, but that's not leaving us very, you know, (laughs) that's not not good enough, in my opinion.
1: Right. You know, now, some of the issues you talk about, besides the digital natives idea, is um, privacy and also cyberbullying, So cyberbullying has been on the radar for the past couple of years, been big um, news, both from tragedies and and scandals to just really um, uh, laws attempting to be passed. So the question is, is social media allowing kids to be crueler or allowing this activity to happen more?
0: You know, when I went into start looking into bullying, I expected it to be so much worse because of the Internet. I mean, I certainly had my fair share of experiences. Um, and so then I started looking into the data. And the first thing I noticed that is is if you stabilize a definition of bullying for the last 30 years, you'll find that bullying hasn't risen, which is weird. And it doesn't mean that it's not significant. It's still pretty significant. So then it says, okay, well, you know, maybe it's because, you know, maybe bullying is not overall more, but it's happening online more. Online must be worse. It's much worse, even as we've combated it in other places. But when you survey young people, what you find is that they continue to report that it happens more frequently with greater emotional duress with more consequences at school. Okay, so what gives? Why is that playing out? You know, most adults look at this and they're like, oh, well, it extends it. So the stuff that was happening at school is now brought into the home. Therefore, it's much worse. Except that what young people continue to report back is that actually all of the validation and support and love that they get from their friends happens at home on the Internet, which actually mediates all of what they're seeing in terms of negativity in ways that it doesn't within the school. Okay, so what's going on here? Part of it, of course, is that it makes it far more visible to more adults, right? It has traces, and these traces are really significant. So if your kid comes home with a black eye, you know he got beaten up in school. But if he comes home grouchy, you don't know what happened. He's just a teenager, right? And so the thing is, is that um, when you see the traces, you actually feel like you have to act, which is where you see a lot of parents jumping in, but they're actually overreacting to what they're seeing online in ways where they often misunderstand it. So they, uh, parents, but generally speaking, refer to bullying as everything from, you know, lightweight teasing to serious forms of criminal harassment, even though teenagers are much more narrow in what goes on. And there's no doubt that a lot of teen drama plays out online. But I think the thing that was most shocking to me as I started, you know, diving into this and seeing all of this in different directions was what happened with the question and answer services. So you'll hear services like Formspring and Ask.fm often you know referenced by media as these terrible sites of the worst of the worst of bullying. And of course there's different different attempts to stop them in different ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But something seemed really strange to me, right? And understanding the technical systems. Those services, the question and answer services, require that you answer a question before it's shown on your profile. So why on earth are teenagers are getting these awful, awful questions? Are they responding to them? Mm -hmm. That seems weird. (laughs) And so I went to the companies and we went and looked into that. We started to notice a really funny trend, which was that the same IP address asking the mean and cruel question was answering to it in under 20 minutes, right? In other words, what kids were doing was they were anonymously asking themselves awful questions Hmm. and they would respond to them showing that they were tough and also soliciting all sorts of love and validation and support. So at first I was like, oh, this must be a strange anomaly. Like this can't be happening that frequently. And a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Englinder, she went and she looked into it. She found that it looks like about a third of young people will admit self-bullying online. Right? That's significant. Yeah. So what is it about a culture of meanness and cruelty mm-hmm. where you're you know, benefited by proving that you can actually withstand it? Um, and of course, what you start to realize is that Young people are aware of what's going on in the adult world. We've turned meanness and cruelty into a national pastime, right? (laughs) It's it's how we do TV news. It's how we do entertainment. It's how we do sports. It's how we do a whole variety of things that we we think are totally acceptable. Not only that, even in the local sense of the home, I'll go into people's homes and parents will lament bullying, and then they'll sit down to dinner, and as they're talking about their days, they'll badmouth all of their colleagues at work, right? It's like teenagers are aware of this. They They know what's going on. And so this is where, you know, teens will often talk to me and be like, well, they're telling me not to do this, but they're so hypocritical. And it's true. We're hypocritical adults, and we don't account for that. And teenagers totally call us on it.
1: Hmm. Now, uh, you know, one of the, aside from the book and, and your discussion of cyberbullying, I think you were involved in a kinder, braver world project, right?
0: I was. Um, so I, I, I've stepped down from that project, um, but the uh, original, well, It was part of a uh, a broader um, campaign. Uh, The Kind of Braver World project was um, a subset of uh, a project with Lady Gaga's foundation Um, and uh, that I worked with the MacArthur Foundation. I've been working with it for a long time. So we did a separate project, which was the Kind of Braver World project, where we stepped aside and said, okay, what is actually happening at the research level? How do we get a mapping of this? How do we understand it? And part of what we really came to, which I think is probably the most significant things, is if you want to empower young people to address these issues, you can't just jump in and tell them to be powerful. Mm-hmm. You actually have to go through a whole set of processes. And the first is really to make certain that young people are safe. Right? And many young people in this country are not safe. They're abused at home. They're abused in their home communities. They're struggling with mental health issues all over the place. And we really need to provide them with some very foundational support and not just sort of in a clinical sense, but also just a, you know, a social network people that they can turn to, right? Once you have a confident sense of safety, then you can start building skills, right? And Skills are all about the idea of saying, okay, how do I have social emotional learning skills? How do I think about resilience and empathy? How do I make certain that I can actually communicate how I'm feeling or communicate with others or help others in, you know, themselves? And then you open up to opportunities where you can actually see young people doing amazing activism. And so part of that project was really, really stepping back and saying, actually, we need to remember that there's a pathway, that we can't just create opportunities for young people to try to do things in this world we need to make certain that they're okay. We need to make certain that they have the skills because only then can they actually take opportunities in a significant fashion.
1: Yeah. Now, do teenagers, or did you find that teenagers uh, and young people in general, and and perhaps a broader society, are aware of or have the skills to deal with what we keep talking about with respect to big data and the the huge amount of data collection and surveillance going on using social media? No
0: one has a clue what's going on. (laughs) Right, I mean, you know, experts are debating these issues. How do we expect average people to understand it? The difficulty that I have with this space is that we keep coming back to the idea that big data should be about the individuals and that we empower individuals, everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to work. And that's not going to work for a variety of reasons. It's not just because individuals don't have power, but it's because a lot of the data that we're dealing with is powerful because of the connections that it makes between people. So let me give you something very concrete. There was a ruling last summer, um, in the Supreme Court that ruled that, um, collecting DNA at the point of arrest is equivalent to collecting, uh, a fingerprint or a photograph. It's a ruling called Marilyn v. King. Right. Um, and so, you know, this idea is, that, okay, well, if we're just collecting, you know, your DNA, that's, you know, it's your fault that you got yourself arrested in the first place, which we'll, will leave the history of policing aside from this. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that, you know, if you look at the NYPD in New York, right, who's you know my home turf, you know, now they have genetic material. Let's just assume they have genetic material of everybody they've arrested in the last five years. Given a world of stop and frisk and a whole variety of other arrest procedures in the this, in this city, what it means is that they have genetic material of, let's just say, 50% of, of black men. Probably mm-hmm. well, highly likely that it's about that. Well, guess what? That doesn't just implicate that 50%. The probability that everybody you know is related to folks like that—you could build these amazing genetic networks of who's all connected. All of these, you know, women of color who who end up having their data in this database have no say over what's going on. All of the ways in which their material—they're mater- they're understood to be related. The way in which not yet born people are connected to these databases. but right? That's the kind of data where you know once you have a genetic map, there's a lot of responsibility about how you're using this because not only are you building a genetic map. You know, for God only knows what reason you you know you can do it for, but you have information that those individuals don't have, right? People who don't even know that they're related to somebody else, right? Because of a whole variety of histories, you know, with regard to family structures, and so these there's this issue of how this data is collected. There's issue of what you do with that data. Who can ask what questions to it, right? And genetic material is just one component of it. You know, uh, you know, uh, cell tower data, right? You know, people are connected in all sorts of unprecedented ways that are algorithmically understood, even if the people themselves don't understand it. And so we have, um, unfortunately, a bad history of guilt through association, and our policing structures have not been particularly pleasant to that. So how do we deal with it? How do we think through it? And this is one of the reasons why I'm really excited to see the civil rights leaders come on board and start to take this stuff seriously, because no one understands, you know, the implications of this, um, and the implications of discrimination that can occur better than the civil rights community. And so to see them trying to come up to speed and understand the technical issues is phenomenal. But you know what? I'm I'm more hopeful of getting civil rights leaders to understand the complexities of this than I am the population writ large. And part of it has to do with the idea that, you know, we often think that, oh, we'll just, transparency is good. We'll make the population see this stuff and then they can understand. If they have no power to do anything, all it does is just make people feel more disconnected. And this is where I'm really interested in an argument made by, um, Alistair where he was basically saying, like, you know what? Discrimination isn't just cost to the individual or to the protected class that we're talking about. It fundamentally destroys the fabric of our society. And one of the big da- dangers in the, in the questions of big data is the same things that allow for tremendous personalization also allow for discrimination. And when we start to not trust each other, when we start to basically have these abilities of, of, Not distributing risk and being like, oh, well, it's your fault that you're sick. It's your fault that you're from this family. It's your fault that you're not smart enough. That is the end of our functioning society and the end of a functioning democracy.
1: You know, you're talking about like some of the activism. that, that could be going on and should be going on. And one of the things I've noticed as a, a frequenter of Tumblr is how much uh, corrective and collective action is taking place among young people in these spaces. So has social media given young people a platform to take you know, activist steps or, or move in an activist way?
0: Yeah, I mean, already activated young people use technology phenomenally. But the thing is, is that they come up against all sorts of systems that don't want them to really be activated. You know, I saw this, for example... Um, in California, during um, a lot of the immigration reform, the you know uh, the, in, during the MySpace era, there was a, a whole set of immigration reform uh, projects underway, and you know um, there was a particular bill in the House that people were rallying around and um, or rallying against, really, and. Um, there were, you know, a lot of Latino communities um, using Spanish-speaking radio, galvanized different kinds of folks to turn out and protest. But a lot of young people felt as though their voices weren't actually being heard and that their their challenges were different. Many of them were documented even though their parents weren't. They were just dealing with different issues. And so they started using MySpace in order to stage a walkout. And they did. They walked out of school um, on a Monday morning and they took over the streets and they took over the highways and it was thousands of kids. And at the time, Mara Villagosa basically responded to them and said, go back to school. Cesar Chavez would be ashamed of you. Mm-hmm. And told them that like, that this was, this was not activism. This was just, you know, this was just them not wanting to be in school. And basically, you know, totally de- um, dismissed everything that they said. Now, of course, the L.A. Unified School District got penalized every day that a sk- kid was absent. So the financial costs for them were really significant. But it was really heartbreaking because I saw these young people really start to realize that these tools could be used. And that place, of course, this is matured for some of the more activated youth. And I certainly see this with an example of the dreamers, right? The dreamers are really turning to social technologies to think about immigration reform, mm-hmm. you know, all these tool, it, through these tools. But it's really tricky, again, because we're seeing these tools be surveilled. And nowhere is that more visible than what, how it plays out in, you know, more oppressed um, countries, where it's like when young people start to activate using this, these tools, Law enforcement, you know in those countries sees it and you know uses it in the most egregious of ways um, and so it's really tricky we aren't quite there in the u s um but the thing is is that law enforcement does pay attention to what's going on and turns up whenever kids turn up to do anything you know physical um, and that's really tricky because you know what a lot of activism is on that gray line of legality, and so it's not very hard when you've got activism going on to find things to um prosecute people for and no one can see that more visibly than with Occupy right like you want to go after people you can go after them it's not that hard and this is one of the reasons why things like predictive policing are so dangerous because of the fact that you have a police presence around you will find people doing something that is illegal and the cost to the you know the population means that they become targeted for minor crimes
1: so Dana what's next for you
0: so I'm in the middle of creating a new think and do tank called the Data and Society Research Institute, um, and it's my attempt to uh, bridge a really important gap. So um, scholars have been thinking about the big data issues in phenomenally critical ways, but you know, disconnected from what's happening on the ground. Meanwhile, activists are responding to whatever the latest crisis is, you know, whether it's the NSA issues or you know whatever's happening in the moment. But there's a yawning gap in between of like, how do you actually bridge these conversations? How do you make sure you have the right frameworks to think about things? And I don't think that I have the right frameworks, but I think that I can actually build a network of people who can think critically about these issues and provide, you know, a central convening point for really trying to tease out, you know, the different challenges that we face. Um, And so I'm in the middle of pulling together a whole variety of different fellows, getting people involved. Engaged, um, and we'll launch either later this summer or early next fall. Um, And you know, we kind of accidentally launched because we held a big event um, in collaboration with NYU and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to help shape um, the big data report that the uh, administration just put out, Um, and to make certain that we dealt with the social, cultural, and ethical issues um, you know at on the table. And so we've been trying to do some of this, and I've been trying to, you know, convene different groups um, to address these issues because there's so much phenomenal stuff that, you know, data-related technologies can do. And so I want to see us build these awesome technologies, but I want us to be critically aware of uh, the the complications that occur in society and make certain that we provide the right structures in place to gain the benefits and not constantly just face new forms of... um, discrimination and inequity
1: great so it's complicated the socialize of network teens is there you know they can find it at anywhere books are sold you can find it well I don't know if it's
0: anywhere but you can also you can also download it online I mean I'm I'd love people to buy it but more than anything I want people to read it so I put a PDF on my website
1: Great. And that is danaboy.org? Dana.org. Dana.org. Right. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. Uh, This has been New Books and Technology.